This is Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we discuss important health-related questions from an authentic Catholic perspective. And we are members of the Catholic Medical Association aiming to uphold the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. And here we are today. We will be having a special treat. Two interviews with individuals who recently attended meetings at the Vatican. Yes, on Vatican non-Italian soil, uh, dealing with medicine. Uh, in the first half of uh, the interview sec- uh, section, we'll have Dr. Christine Hemphill of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, an obstetrician-gynecologist uh, who attended a conference called Humanity 2.0. I think they just have small goals with that system. <laughs> and then we'll interview, or I will interview, in the back of a taxi, no less, on the way to the Rome airport, Dr. Jack Lane, a neuroradiologist, say that five times fast, from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And that, that was, I guess, our second international interview. Our right? second, but the first one in a moving vehicle. See, lots of firsts for Dr. Doctor oh, here. Oh, we, we, love, we love firsts. First, last, bests, and nexts. And the next (laughs) is a recent medical news item. When I was at that conference at the Vatican with Dr. Jack Lane, April 26th to 28th, one of the speakers there was the current director of the National Institutes of Health, Dr. Francis Collins, which is a name well-known to the majority of physicians. Wouldn't you say, Andrew? I'd say so. That's definitely one of the premier kind of governmental organizations uh, that overlaps in, in the management, really, in the planning of health in America. And he was well-known in the country because he oversaw the Human Genome Project, the, the first time that an entire human DNA sequence had been determined. That's over 3 billion base pairs, over 3 million letters in the DNA alphabet. And that cost $100 million. Today, somebody can... Do your genome for under a thousand dollars? Isn't the that incredible? Whole genome, it's coming down closer to a hundred dollars. What yes. was that? Was that twenty years ago? Not even. Uh, Fifteen years ago, I think two thousand three, maybe a little earlier than that. They completed that. Yeah, just That's, that is incredible. Just amazing. Well, the reason I bring up Francis Collins is because the NIH, National Institutes of Health, based out of Bethesda, Maryland, and I, I used to get to go there. Every other week when I was doing biologic warfare research at Fort Detrick, Maryland, I'd drive down and they had dermatology grand rounds there. And the patients at the NIH hospital are unique because they are all part of research protocols. No matter what specialty you're in, these are all patients who are doing research treatments. So something they have just started, and it was uh, launched across the country on Sunday, May 6th, is a program called All of Us. And they are seeking one million people. That's one million with an M, not B with a billion with a B. And what they want to do is get these one million participants to donate six vials of blood, some urine, a waistline measurement, access to their electronic health record, a wearable wrist sensor that they will wear like, you know, those exercise watches, those fitness trackers, and in the future, give permission to sequence their genome. And why? Because the NIH wants to make personalized medicine a reality. Now, this sounds a little scary and spooky, like maybe some big brother could get in here. So I think that doesn't sound like that, Tom. It's only the government. They're here to help. Right. (laughs) Like I said, this sounds scary, spooky, maybe. Maybe it's very good. I think it's one of those things that of itself is not necessarily wrong, but how it's used could be. And one of the quotes that Francis Collins used in his talk when I was at the Vatican was a quote from Albert Schweitzer, who over 100 years ago said, we must not allow our technology to outpace our humanity. And when Pope Francis addressed us who were at this conference with about 350 medical people, philanthropists, scientific researchers, he said, just because something is technologically possible does not mean it is ethically right to do. And I was so glad that he said that to to us. He, I think he took that from the Jurassic Park guy who said it first. 
but uh, we will give credit to Pope Francis. Yes, that's the second time today I've heard a reference to Jurassic Park. Thank you <laughs> for that. But uh, this new program called All of Us, which you can find at allofus.nih.gov, uh, has a $230 million annual budget. And they point out that most medical research has been done on the people you're listening to, adult white males. And that's a problem because if you've looked around, you'll notice that most of the world is not adult white males. There are children, there are non-white people, and there are even, I hear, non-male people. (laughs) (laughs) And I think I live with some of them. Yes, yes, estrogen Americans, as I've heard them called. So (laughs) we need more women, children, racial, economic, and geographic diversity to better understand different diseases. And this is, I think, a noble goal. They hope to have 298 sites online around the country, and right now they have 120 sites. Now, on the flip side of the scary, spooky, big brother government, we can also look at some large studies which have given us a great deal of good information, such as the Framingham Heart Study. That began in 1948 following an entire community in Massachusetts, and we've learned a great deal of information by learning about everybody in a given town. And then starting in 1976, also in Massachusetts, was the Harvard Nurses' Health Study. So the largest study of women uh, medically, 280,000 currently enrolled nurses, all women in this case, to learn things about women's health because women's risk for certain diseases is very different than that for men, especially with cardiac disease. A hundred percent. I think, you know, one of the difficulties is where you get participants and I think this this could be a unique way to do it because in the past a lot of times people were, you know, financially motivated or I I was interested to learn how we got the the normal vital signs even blood pressure heart rate and How such. did we get those normal vital signs? Do you know this already? I don't. Oh, I I was told at least there was a a series of studies done I believe in Minnesota on prisoners in the 1950s. Oh, cuz they're normal. Yeah. Cuz those are the normal people <laughs> and it was all a bunch of, you know, male incarcerated folks and they averaged everybody's heart rates and that's how we got an average heart rate. And so when when somebody has, you know, we look at computers all day and there's a vital sign that's red. What does that mean? Bad. Well, it, red it, is bad. <laughs> usually red is bad, but it it depends on the person. And if you're yes. looking at uh, a pregnant lady or a child, you know, it would be different than your standard prisoner, which is where we got it from. So I, I think this could give a lot of information, but it, it definitely provides some, some concern to make sure it's done ethically. So the All of Us campaign. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where Andrew and I have been discussing the medical news of the day, and we're now moving into Andrew's patented medical tip, maybe preventive. It is preventative. It is today. preventative. It is, and it and it touches on the vital signs actually. Oh, today is about blood pressure. Everybody knows about blood pressure. This is this is one from 2015 from the USPSTF, and basically it says that folks older than 18 should be screened for high blood pressure. It's a pretty simple statement, but there's I think there's a lot of thought behind that actually. I can't even imagine how many billions of dollars of research and participants. <laughs> and I mean, blood pressure has got to be one of the most studied things around, don't you think? Anything we can put a number to is studied. In, in fact, and that reminds me of this whole electronic medical record thing, reporting certain things to the government. Which things do they choose to measure? Do they choose the things to measure that make the most difference? Right. No, they choose the things to measure, <coughs> excuse me, that are the easiest to measure. That's the truth. And that's why we, you know, you go into any physician's office or the ER, the first thing they do is rate your pain. You know, people don't think in scales of one to 10 for how <laughs> things hurt. And if I had a nickel for every time somebody had the pain of 12 out of 10, <laughs> you know, which is nonsensical, but that's, you know, everything's got to be put into numbers so that the computers and the data people can understand it. But blood pressure, thank goodness, it naturally lends itself to, to measurement with numbers. And so we, there has been a lot of research done and we know that high blood pressure is bad. So kind of the top three things you need to know is, you know, what, how do people get high blood pressure? 
it used to be called essential hypertension because they thought it was an essential part of getting older. Ah. And so a lot of times people may see that as a diagnosis, and that's, that's stuck around. We have found that even though it's very common as people age, and age is something that usually is associated with higher blood pressure, it's, it's not the only thing. Family history definitely plays a big part, as well as lifestyle. If someone smokes, if someone's obese, if someone is inactive and doesn't get a lot of activity, their blood pressures are going to tend to run higher than others. And, you know, why do we care about this? We care about this because we know folks with higher blood pressures in general, more heart attacks, more strokes, and even more dementia, uh, because we know a lot of dementia is caused by a million tiny strokes, vascular dementia. Oh, yes. And so infarct dementia. It's, uh, it's important that we, we do keep an eye on the blood pressure. So, you know, there's a couple other things that I think people would like to know. Number two is that the cuffs you use at home are actually, usually they read lower than the ones in the doctor's office. Oh, why is that, Andrew? So, well, you know, actually I'm not sure technically why, probably because at least the ones I had to buy from my office were very expensive. And <laughs> I've seen them at Walmart for maybe 20 bucks, and so I, I don't know if, if the quantity and quality are the same there. But, you know, one of the biggest things I, I tell folks is it's important about how the blood pressure is taken. Yes. So you never want to take one measurement as the objective truth. You want to average measurements. And to really get an official measurement, I, I don't know if this is done often, the patient's got to be sitting down for five minutes with no talking before the blood pressure's done. Um, and then you take the blood pressure. They have to have an empty bladder because if the bladder's full, that's going to raise your blood pressure. Your feet have to be flat on the ground, can't be talking. Your arm has to be resting. You can't hold your arm with your own muscles. It has to be resting at heart level. If your arm is above your heart, it's a way to cheat on your blood pressure. It's going to look better. And if it's lower than your heart, it's actually going to inadvertently read higher. And so a lot of times, you know, that's that's the precise way to take a blood pressure And this is done in exactly zero out of ten times. In that's, the exa- <laughs> that's exactly right. It doesn't, it doesn't lend itself to daily use. But, you know, I guess the, the last thing I would say, the top third, the third thing is that the goals for blood pressure need to be individualized. Most people are familiar with the idea of 120 on top, the systolic number, and 80 on the bottom Mm -hmm. being normal. The bottom number is called diastolic blood pressure. That's when your heart is not actively beating. It's resting in between beats. And that is, that's a good number, but you guys would not believe how much disagreement there is about what a normal blood pressure is or if someone's on medicine, what the goal blood pressure should be. There's lots of people who have different, different understandings of that. And I always tell folks that there's pretty good agreement that as folks get older, we can allow the blood pressure to run higher rather than treating it because we even think that there's some hardening of the arteries, atherosclerosis, that basically causes the numbers to look higher, even though if you looked inside with an arterial line, the blood pressure inside is lower. And so you've got to have an individualized decision with your doctor and if you go too low, you get lightheaded. Many people suffer from that. If you go too high, you actually feel great, but you're getting closer to death and debility. <laughs> so it's a rock and a hard place, but it's something that everybody should think about. And if you're older than 18, we think you should be screened. So that's my tip of the day. Thank you, Andrew, for blood pressure. Hopefully not increasing our listeners' <laughs> blood pressures. And before we go to our break, I'll pose our medical trivia question of the day. Now, you may know of an ancient treatment that was eliminated years ago, that of bloodletting, leeches, cutting people's veins open to drip blood into containers. You know, they say that George Washington was bled to death. He didn't really die of his peritonsillar abscess. Well, anyway, bloodletting originated with the ancient Greeks, such as Hippocrates and Galen. And they had the four-humor theory of disease. Not humor as in ha-ha, but humor as in different substances or liquids in the bottle. In the bottle. In the body. (coughs) Where have I been? (laughs) So they thought that too much of a good thing, like blood, was a bad thing, a disease. So they thought that if these humors were out of balance with each other, the four humors were, besides blood, black bile, whatever that is, yellow bile, which we still have today, which is often green, and phlegm. These were the four humors that had to be in balance. So if somebody had a disease where they thought there was too much blood, they would drain it out. But fortunately, bloodletting has gone the way of the dodo bird, the passenger pigeon, and disco dancing. Or has it? 
you might be surprised to learn that bloodletting is still a legitimate treatment for at least three diseases. My question, can you name at least one of these diseases? Now, you might not know the technical medical name, but you might know what's wrong with the body. So see if you can think of at least one of the diseases which is rationally treated by bloodletting. We'll be back after the break. Dr. Doctor returns now with an interview of Dr. Christine Hemphill. Uh, Christine is a fellowship-trained OB-GYN doctor specializing in NAPRO technology. And she currently works uh, at Holy Spirit OB-GYN in Camp Hill, Pennsylvania as a part of the Geisinger Health System. Welcome to Dr. Doctor, Christine. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here today. Wow, we're really happy to have you. And on April 19th of this year, you attended a Vatican Forum exploring a healthy environment for pregnancy, which this group calls the principal determinant of a human being's future. And this was sponsored by a group called Humanity 2.0, as well as the Vatican Dicastery for the Promotion of Integral Human Development. So, Christine, uh, what were your expectations for this conference, and why did you decide it would be worth attending? Honestly, I didn't have very many expectations because it was kind of proposed to me um, kind of last minute. I was asked by a colleague of mine about two weeks before the uh, the conference was held to attend in her place um, because with a short notice, she couldn't get her schedule to work. And I honestly didn't think I was going to be able to get my schedule to work. I was actually scheduled to be on call the night before and the night after wow. the conference. And my colleagues at our practice um, thought that it was a worthwhile adventure. And my hospital system financially backed me to be able to go. Wow. So, Tremendous. Um, we felt, you know, I, I felt like everything was falling into place. And if it was falling into place, then I was meant to be there. I was still unsure of what my my purpose there was, but honestly, for everything to fall into place, flights to get booked perfectly, no no issues with getting there, costs to get covered, I, I felt like everything was was perfect for being there. I was supposed to be there, so I went with an open mind. I, it it was based on maternal health, which being an OBGYN, obviously, I'm very concerned about. We know that the United States is having a higher mortality rate than it's had in the past. And so I was kind of wanting to find out what this group had to offer to see how it can help women. Yeah, Christine, Honestly, that's, that's the reason why I went. Good. One of the, the big three things that this conference wanted to talk about was maternal health care. Why was that topic chosen as being so important? Well, the, the Humanity 2.0 group wanted to identify various things that were impediments to human progress, and they really felt that um, they wanted to start at the beginning. They wanted to start where human life started and to be able to assist with the potential that that life could develop into. And so they felt that it made more sense to start with maternal care so that you can take care of the human in utero and, of course, the mother because the mother's care for that child, there's, there's no care similar to a mother's care. So they wanted to make sure that the maternal health was being taken care of so that it can set up a human from its earliest stages and, and give it the best chance at um, developing to its full potential. And, and I found this fascinating because the Humanity 2.0 group is not explicitly or in any way Catholic, but yet they are partnering with the Catholic Church uh, isn't that right? They are. They are. They they specifically wanted the Catholic Church to be involved. Um, they felt like it was a good uh, avenue in which to ensure that this information could be spread, that the Catholic Church would be able to look at things holistically and see it from a worldwide stance and how it will be beneficial for for all of humankind, not just a particular country or or group of people. They want it to to really be able to be applicable to anyone from anywhere in the world. 
you know, Christine, one, one of the things you touched on was the high infant mortality rate, especially in the U- United States. What, what did you guys discuss about that issue? Um, it, really, from the, the incidence of high mortality rate, it was, it was brought up because one of the aspects that was brought up was um, like infant mortality in regards to in third world countries, um, babies die from very simple things like hypothermia, but we wanted to bring back the the awareness that it's not just simple things like that. Even in well-developed countries like the United States, we're still struggling with healthcare in general. Um, we they they brought up the fact that you know we're a, an an industrialized nation, and whereas other nations in the world are having a decrease in their their maternal mortality, we actually are having an increase and. In, so we need to look at that as well and see what's the what's the cause behind it. What are things that we can do as a change? Um, some of the thought processes were how we approach maternal health because of our split care with private insurance, the in, uh, unequal access to private insurance, and and things along those lines. Um, which honestly I would agree with because many women who don't have insurance will qualify for insurance care during their pregnancies, but it's very limited. It's only it's only pregnancy care. So if they have a different medical need, if they have mental health issues, if they have cardiac issues, those don't often get covered with their pregnancy insurance. If you just joined us, you're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where today we are interviewing Dr. Christine Hemphill about her role in a Vatican-sponsored conference that dealt with maternal Healthcare, Christine, Humanity 2.0 and maternal health care, what do they plan to do next? What concrete actions do they want to take now? Well, their, their first um, item of business is to get a lab created in Rome, um, referred to as the Square Roots Lab. And this is where they want to head up um, their headquarters for maternal health globally. They are actually anticipating that over the next two years, they're going to Um, focus on the maternal health. This lab will be their central point um, where they come up with ideas and, so to speak, protocols for introducing to countries um, and and various different areas to improve the maternal health in various spots in the world, you know, more independent of that particular location, you know, um, individualized care. so that's, that's their very first aspect that they're trying to to accomplish. And, and some of that is, is just looking for who would be supportive of this from a philosophical standpoint, from a financial standpoint, from an ideological standpoint, so that they can actually share ideas for brainstorming on solutions. Christine, you, you had mentioned who would be supportive. What, what types of people um, attended this forum? Who, who are the players in this? Honestly, I was very surprised. I was anticipating a forum full of medical providers, and there was probably 100, maybe 150 participants for this forum. And I could only identify three of us who were physicians, one who was a nurse midwife, and everybody else was part of um, the religious aspects. We had, um, obviously, Catholic involvement priests and and religious sisters but we also had representatives of other faith backgrounds um, a lot of businessmen there were bankers there were um, media executives there there was an astronaut um, <laughs> yeah Babies in I mean, space. It, it, was, it was a wide yeah it was a wide wide uh, variety of, of backgrounds um, the astronaut was actually speaking about her experience as a mom working, a career mom, and how she had to hold, put her family on hold in order to be able to do her mission that she was assigned to. And, and then once her mission was accomplished, she was able to expand her family. So um, it's, it's recognizing the sacrifices that women make in order to balance career and family. Why do you think the Vatican has decided to become part of this? I think the Vatican wanted to become part of it because they they know that for anything to take hold in the world, you have to bring 
various different people together. And it's, it's a great a great location for people to go. I think everybody can feel relatively safe at, at the Vatican's location. Um, it's a new, it's a very very neutral location as far as politics and and governments are concerned. Um, it doesn't really pose a threat to anybody's individual country. Um, but the Vatican, especially under under Pope Francis, has been very easy to listen to what others have to say. I, I think they also wanted to have a say in what was going on. And so in a way, it, it's nice to bring people to your own house yes. and be able to see what's, what's happening <laughs> to oversee things. You know, and Christine, in, in looking at some of the stuff that you guys went through, one of the things that you discussed a lot was tenderness. I know that was discussed in depth. Can you tell our audience about that, what you guys discussed? So our first two hours of the day were spent on tenderness, and really it was a definition of what we perceived tenderness to be because Pope Francis had talked about tenderness um, in his recent encyclical. I believe it was an encyclical. Um, And really our interpretation was that tenderness was putting love in action. And we talked about how we could actually show tenderness to others. how we can show others that we love, not just talk about it, not just tweet about it, not just put it onto Facebook, but to actually put it into action so that the love of God is, is shown to our brethren. And that's really what the purpose of the first two hours were. I think it was, it was a, a great motivator into um, thinking about what the next steps would be. I know that you were... Uh, reached out to by the head of Humanity 2.0. Have you been able to touch base with him yet? Yes. So um, Matthew Sanders and I have been corresponding back and forth. Um, Things are still very early in the um, developmental stages. They're still trying to see who's interested and how they're interested and how best to utilize resources and talent. So we're, we're still going back and forth as to you know, what I can do personally, how I can spread the word of what's going on, um, and what their next step goals are. So, yes, we actually, on yesterday, it was my last email with him. Oh, very good. So do you see a role for you or for Catholic Medical Association physicians having some impact with this uh, joint initiative with the Vatican? Absolutely. I think especially those of us who are in um, women's and children's uh, specialties, pediatrics, uh, uh, obstetricians, gynecologists, family physicians, um, I think we can definitely play a role. We see what's happening um, on the ground, so to speak. We see what our patients are undergoing. We understand the fractionation that's happening with healthcare here in the U.S. Um, as far as internationally, if we have other colleagues who are involved with us, I think they can speak up as well um, and give different different points of view as to what they see. Um, I know a lot of us do mission work, so we see what happens internationally too. So I think it's important for us to show what what we're seeing live, so to speak, and and get that information out there so that it's not just theoretic but true examples of what's happening on the ground. Speaking from personal experience, I found that being in that safe space of the Vatican was actually fascinating because people there were having discussions related to faith that they wouldn't have had in almost any other setting. It was very fulfilling. Christine, thank you for being a guest on Dr. Doctor today. Uh, I hope and pray that uh, your work with Humanity 2.0 helps make a positive influence for others. Thank you so much. I appreciate the time to be on today. Thanks, Christine. Here we are. Uh, First, for Dr. Doctor, we are traveling in the backseat of a car on the way to the Rome Airport after an exciting Vatican conference called Unite to Cure, sponsored by the Pontifical Council for Culture. And with me today is Dr. Jack Lane, the previous president of the Catholic Medical Association. 
Jack is also a Catholic Medical Association representative to the International Federation of Catholic Medical Associations and is currently a neuroradiologist at Mayo Clinic. Uh, welcome, Jack. Good to be here, Tom. Thanks. And, and Jack, the conference Unite to Cure, the two of us only learned about it a month ago. What inspired you to come here? Well, Tom, uh, reviewing the program uh, prior to arrival, uh, you know, I think we both had some reservations about uh, what we might be experiencing, but uh, I came away very much impressed with uh, what, what the Vatican had to offer uh, in this venue and uh, quite excited about uh, some of the technologies that we were uh, presented with. Yes, it, it was a, a packed program and it brought together physicians, scientists, and philanthropists in the same room. We actually met in the same room where the Pope meets with the uh, synods of bishops that are held here from time to time. You've probably seen pictures of the room. It's right next to the Paul VI audience hall where the Pope holds his indoor audiences of uh, up to 6,000 people. So. If you were to describe for our audience what you saw as the purpose of this conference, how would you describe it? Well, looking at the program and, and trying to define how Katy Perry and Jack Nicholas and Peter Gabriel <laughs> uh, applied to the mission of the Catholic Church, uh, again, I think we were, we were both uh, somewhat querulous about uh, how all that was going to work out, but it worked out wonderfully. And as uh, our colleague, uh, Father Nicanor, a Dominican from Providence uh, College, had explained the, the purposes of these conferences, which began under Pope Benedict, uh, was basically akin to the court of the Gentiles, which was uh, an area of the ancient temple in Jerusalem where Gentiles were allowed to come to the temple uh, without entering the Holy of Holies and engage the, uh, the Jewish culture uh, and religion, as it were. So this is an opportunity for largely uh, secular scientists to come and uh, share their work with the church and the church to share its perspective with the secular world. So it, it really seemed to work quite nicely. Uh, I was amazed that I did not encounter any anti-Catholic thoughts from some scientists, many of who are true materialists. Agreed. Um, it, you know, both of us being from the Catholic Medical Association actually felt, I think, quite welcome. I think I speak for you uh, oh, yes. in that regard as well. Yeah, it was wonderful. And a number of the investigators who would not be, who would not consider themselves overtly religious, uh, seemed and said they were comfortable discussing aspects of their lives, such as their, their spiritual life or religious beliefs, in a scientific meeting for the first time in their lives. Uh, I think one great example of that was our uh, current NIH director. Yes, Dr. Collins uh, was able to. Uh in several venues, being able to give his opinion of uh, the science that was developed and, and at the same time share his faith perspective, which was wonderful to see. Yes, he was the one who headed up the Human Genome Project that uh, sequenced the, the first complete uh, human genome of uh, about uh, three billion base pairs. Uh, and now, that which cost about a hundred million dollars at the time he did it can now be done for under a thousand dollars only 17 years later. Uh, just just amazing. Yes, and some of your readers or, or your listeners may be aware of his book, The, the Language of God, ah, yes. which uh, you know, was really his reflection on that human uh, genome project and obviously the language of God being the sequencing of the DNA. So it uh, really is written into our own bodies. And uh, if anybody is an A-list scientist in the world, it's, it's Francis Collins. And I recall he said that he was an atheist until the age of 27 and was converted through uh, 
an author who many Catholics enjoy. C.S. Lewis, yes, of course. That was uh, quite exciting to listen to him explain that to the audience. Uh, and because they hold him in such regard, it uh, carried even more weight. Some of the science and research that was presented there was remarkable. I know that uh, you're a neuroradiologist and there was one case in particular that caught your attention. Yes, it was a young woman who actually uh, was present at the meeting and um, was able to give a, you know, her own clinical history to the audience uh, together with her neurologist, Dr. Bird at Northwestern. Um, he's developed a, a cell-based um, immunotherapy for the treatment of multiple sclerosis, and she was one of the early beneficiary, beneficiaries of that technique, and um, has been disease-free of her MS now for the better part of 10 years following her therapy. So this woman, around the age of 18, noticed that she was weak in different muscles at different times, couldn't feel things. What's going on on the inside of a patient with multiple sclerosis to cause that problem? Uh, it's what's known as an inflammatory demyelination. So the, uh, the insulation around the axons uh, that make up the central nervous system uh, are being attacked by the patient's own uh, immune system. And that leads to a demyelination uh, or a inflammatory destruction of that is the, those uh, layers of insulation around the, the, the nerves and uh, ultimately will lead to these neurologic symptoms. So if we imagined our electrical wires in our homes, if they didn't have the insulation but were just bare wires and bare wires touching each other, that must really screw up the way the brain works. Yes, it, it can be quite debilitating and oftentimes is, uh, is quite progressive over the years. So she received stem cells. So for our audience, what are stem cells? These are um, very uh, potent cells that can, that can differentiate into different tissues. Uh, within our bodies and oftentimes stem cells can be obtained from uh, various um, tissues of the body, whether that be uh, fat cells or muscle or oftentimes uh, bone marrow cells containing these pluripotential cells. And now when we're talking about stem cells, we are not in any way talking about what has been termed embryonic stem cells, that is getting cells from a very early developing baby thus lead to the destruction of the baby, all of these stem cells come from bodies after they are born. So no, no person is harmed in the acquisition of these stem cells. Correct, and um, the, the stem cell, embryonic stem cell debate going back 15, 20 years really appears to be over as most of the uh, successful techniques using stem cell therapies are uh, exclusively with adult stem cells. Uh, which is very good morally. In fact, the organizer of this conference uh, partnered perfect, purposely with the Vatican because uh, she, Robin Smith, a physician, uh, wanted to work with the church on things that everybody could agree was a moral approach. And not only is it the moral approach, it's also the successful medical approach since but nothing has successfully come from work with embryonic stem cells. Uh, yes, that'd be my understanding as well, Tom, and um, a lot of the early work with embryonic stem cells, um, researchers were finding that there was tumor potential in those cells in many, many yes. of those uh, studies were discontinued because of that. So this woman with the multiple sclerosis, as I understand it, had to first go in the hospital and they had to pretty much destroy her bone marrow. Yes, that's correct. And yet it was replaced with some of her own cells that had been taken out previously and, uh, and uh, reprogrammed uh, and then put back in her own body uh, and basically healed her. Uh, as of today, that's, that's correct. There's been no recurrence of her. Uh, previous 
symptoms. I mean, she said, and, and no recurrence, I mean, no weakness, no numbness. Is that unusual or could this just be something that happened by chance that some MS patients are going to have that happen? Uh, quite unlikely that if, um, if they've been diagnosed with the uh, more common forms of multiple sclerosis that, that uh, there would be no evidence of progression without a, a therapy like this. And it's been over 10 years and she has the normal strength and uh, feeling abilities of anybody her age in her early 30s. Uh, there is another neurologic case, this time of a baby. Do you remember those, uh, those short film clips they showed of the floppy babies? Yeah, it was truly remarkable that uh, some of these children with uh, floppy baby syndrome could respond so dramatically from these uh, stem cell therapies. It was really remarkable. So what, what is floppy baby syndrome and what does it look like? Well, uh, the cases that were shown uh, at the time basically for those present at the meeting, um, these infants were being picked up by their torso, by their chest cavities, and lifted up, and, and actually could not lift their limbs against gravity. So it was an extreme form of a muscular uh, disorder. Uh, and, and I think the term floppy baby, you know, basically, uh, for your audience, um, that's exactly what it looks like. Yeah, they, they can't roll over, they can't sit up, they can't hold their head up. And with this, the baby that they showed the example, uh, apparently the connections between the spinal cord and the muscles around the spine are not intact. Is that right? That's correct. And so in this disorder, uh, I think this baby also received some of its own stem cells. Uh, that was my understanding as well, Tom. Yes. And, and what happened after the baby received an injection of stem cells over a period of time? These were administered intravenously and these uh, stem cells were able to find their way through the bloodstream into the central nervous system uh, and re-innervate uh, that muscle. So re-innervate means really, really connecting up those nerves that uh, tell the muscles, contract, do your thing. And so the video of the after-treatment effects were amazing. They truly were. Uh, you know, to see these children walk um, and be able to use their, their limbs, uh, throwing balls or reaching up to push an elevator button. Yeah, this <laughs> little two-year-old boy who a year before couldn't even roll over was now standing and walking like any normal child his age. Uh, that never happens to these babies before in history. Correct, yes. Uh, very poor prognosis with these children. Well, this is uh, Dr. Doctor. We have trustworthy medical information for Catholics and everyone else. We'll be back after the break. This is Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where your hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, and our guests discuss important health-related questions from an authentically Catholic perspective. And I know you've been sweating blood, haha, trying to figure out what you can legitimately treat with bloodletting today. Can you name one of the three diseases? Well, the medical names of these diseases are hereditary hemochromatosis, polycythemia vera, and porphyria cutanea tarda. Now, if you're thoroughly confused, you're normal. So the first <laughs> disease, hereditary hemochromatosis. Your body is storing too much iron. And the main thing it can damage is your liver, but also many other organs if the level of iron in your blood gets too much. So how do you get rid of iron in the body? Blood, body? You take blood off. So you could go somewhere where you donate blood and they will take it off. Um, Usually for, for patients like this, we'll write a prescription to the Red Cross to take off so much blood every few months. Right. And then they'll measure your body's iron levels or ferritin, which is a, a storage protein for iron, and to try to get it down to a certain level. And this is uh, of note, especially in men, because women for half of their life normally 
bleed regularly. But for guys, they, they start storing up iron as a kid and frequently keep storing it through their whole life. So this affects men more than women. That makes sense. Uh, the second disease is called polycythemia vera, or uh, vera means true. Polycythemia means too many cells in the blood. Your body is making too many blood cells, too many red blood cells, too many white blood cells, and your blood gets really thick and sludgy. Yep, that's exactly it. And you would feel almost like the if you had severe dehydration, your blood is it, it can't do what it's supposed to do. It's not liquid enough. And, and you're at risk for uh, blood clots, you know, strokes, heart attacks, uh, blood clots going to your lungs or your legs. And that can be a bad thing. You can get a, a big spleen. You start to get open sores on your skin because your blood isn't uh, getting to places where it needs to be. So again, write that prescription to the Red Cross and have them take off the blood. And the third disease is something that I actually have treated in dermatology with a prescription for bloodletting, and that's porphyria cutanea tarda. And the way this presents, uh, it's a disease that uh, people are very sensitive to the sun. They get blisters on the back of their hands, that scar. They get blisters up on the, the cheekbones. And in this condition, there is an enzyme in the liver that is not working right. And it's an enzyme that helps to make heme, which is the protein that iron binds to in red blood cells. And so if the iron builds up, it blocks this en enzyme. And so the enzyme even gets less effective. And you get in this vicious circle of building up these chemicals called porphyrins, and many of them make you sensitive to sunlight. And so here, the thing to do again is to, you know, have them draw off blood. It's, uh, you know, there's, there's no really bad side effects of it, uh, and they monitor to make sure that you have enough blood in your body. So there are three diseases, too much iron, uh, secondly, a disease where there's too many red and white blood cells being made, and the third one where there's, there's an enzyme that isn't working right that allows iron to build up in your body. So now you know. We have a question from our listener that uh, we'd like to answer in the next several minutes. Yes, Tom. We've got a question from a 60-year young female. It says that she's been battling ingrown facial hairs that have become inflamed and irritated. The issue will not clear up until the hair is removed. So it's her job, she feels, to get it out. And then to compound the problem, uh, the digging the hairs out, she's been to numerous dermatologists without any success. One doctor actually told her there were not any hair follicles on her cheek. Um, that's not really accurate. Uh, <laughs> no. no one has been able to advise this patient as to why this is happening or how to stop it. They just prescribe antibiotics, topicals, tell her to stop picking and send her on her way. She's been at this for 10 years. Do you, do you have any hope for this patient, Tom? Well, I have not seen the patient. I've not seen pictures. So I can speak in generalities uh, as to what may be going on here. Uh, the first thing I would ask is, how do you know that there are ingrown hairs? Patients use that term frequently when there's some kind of bump or rough area there. Uh, on the skin, and they think it's an ingrown hair. Now, there are hair follicles all over the surface of the body, with the exception of, you know, the red parts of the lips, the palms and soles, the finger and toenail beds, certain portions of the genitalia and breasts, as well as in scars. So on the cheeks, yes, there are hair follicles uh, in everybody. Um, secondly, I want to know, are there red bumps or pimples present on the areas of the so-called ingrown hairs before this happens. If there are, this could mean a diagnosis such as acne, or rosacea, uh, infection, certain irritants could be causing this. Another question I'd have is, are there any unusual sensations first that then cause you to pick your skin? Or do you see something? So the feeling or seeing beforehand is important. If there is something that they feel there, some people are much more sensitive to sensations than other people. And this is the way they're wired at the level of the brain. And so these unusual sensations, this, you know, sometimes easy itching, is something that we can turn off or, or turn down in the brain. Like if you have a, a volume knob that's set too high, you can turn the volume knob down. Well, we can turn a knob down in the brain too with certain types of medications. And oftentimes these medications are also used to treat um, diseases like 
uh, depression or obsessive compulsive disorder or sometimes even seizures. But just because we give a medicine that can treat these things doesn't mean it can't treat other things. And so I have successfully treated a number of patients uh, during my life with medicines such as that. Um, something else that's important is, is there anything you can see on the skin before you start picking? That's another important thing. It differentiates, again, is this a primary disorder of the way things feel? Or is there actually something physically happening in the skin first? Now, if there are hairs there that you want to get rid of, then you talk about ways to get rid of it. And usually the only, the only ways to get rid of hairs permanently would either be laser hair removal and electrolysis. If the hairs are dark, laser hair removal will work. If the, laser, if the hairs are light colored, laser will not work and you would need to use electrolysis. And then if the problem truly is around the hair and you get rid of the hairs, the problem will go away. So the answer is yes, something can be done, but somebody has to look at those specific questions. And oftentimes people who start to pick out of habit, some doctors will just say stop picking and they're right, but you've got to give people a way to stop it. So the way I would handle um, patients who came in would be to say, hey, you've got this habit, if you want to break the habit, here's a medicine that can make you itch less or feel those things less. If you're willing to try it, I'm willing to give it to you. So that's that's really good advice. You basically, you have to go and sort through these things, but there is hope. You, I don't think patients really, a lot of times people have this perception that, you know, we've done all that we can do. I'd feel like that doesn't happen often in medicine. There's usually something that we can do to help. There's almost always something we can do to help. And so, Andrew, this brings us to the end of another episode of Dr. Doctor. You know, we encourage people to support the Catholic Medical Association by mentioning it to physicians and nurses that you know. You can learn more about the organization at cathmed.org. That's C-A-T-H-M-E-D.org. But we thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Malawi signing off until next time. And please remember that your medical decisions today can have profound consequences tomorrow. So please, choose wisely. Choose Catholic. On next week's episode, Dr. Alan Moy will talk about stem cells, what they are, how they're used, and what they promise for the future of medicine. Tune in for Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio every Friday and Saturday afternoon at 1, or find new episodes at RedeemerRadio.com doctor.